Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. President Trump was on a tour of the UK this past week, and for the most part, things went smoothly. There was some protests in the area, but he successfully met with the Queen and had a joint press conference with outgoing Prime Minister Theresa May. We spoke to Daniel Littman, reporter for Politico, for more on Trump's trip in London. Yeah, he's thought of her previously as kind of a loser because she's had such a tough time getting out of the European Union, even though the Brits didn't vote to leave it in Brexit. But this time he offered, he wanted her to stay to negotiate that US-UK trade deal, not realizing that her last day as the head of government there is on Friday. And so you can't really make a trade deal in three days when it's very complicated stuff. But she seemed to be relieved as well. And so, and he was in good spirits too. And so they seemed to get along very nicely. What is the nature of the trade deal that we're going to be working on with the UK? The deal is basically, given that they are leaving the EU, or at least that's been the plan because of this vote, then they're going to be deprived of those special EU trade statuses and privileges. And so that's why they've had to rebuild their trade relationship with the US, because now it's a bilateral instead, before they were in a multilateral Uh, organization. And so it's kind of trying to keep the UK economy on the mend, or at least afloat because of these serious economic worries that without their participation in the EU, then there could be many more trade barriers with the US and other countries. Right. There's going to be a lot at stake. They're one of our biggest allies. So who is the president going to be communicating with next? Theresa May is going to be out I've seen stuff about Boris Johnson, and the president has said he likes him. I think he would do a very good job. Who else might be in the running for prime minister there? He actually got some criticism for seeming to endorse Boris Johnson, which is not a good tactic because it's better to let other countries deal with their own internal affairs. There is someone else that is a top contender, which is Jeremy Hunt, who's the Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs in the UK right now. They're kind of battling that. Boris Johnson looks like he has a narrow lead, but he gets a lot of criticism for not being able to actually know the policy. And he's very flamboyant and doesn't seem to take his job that seriously. If Jeremy Corbyn ever was made prime minister, that would be much tougher because he refused to meet with Trump. There was a state dinner and he joined an anti-Trump protest as well this week. How has the president's trip overall been going so far? Everything seems to have been going on pretty smoothly for the most part. I know he's been criticizing the London mayor specifically, but other than that, everything seems to be going okay. Yeah, I think we're getting the sense that he is acting pretty presidential compared to his usual antics in the U.S. And so he's not getting criticism for much uh, on this trip. This is a pretty low-risk trip. And so if he couldn't pull it off, then uh, he would get lots of criticism. But <laughs> Although there has been a, a round of protests, which uh, at one point he said sure. he called them they were fake news. But, uh, you know, we've all seen the pictures of the big baby blimp, you know, the big Trump baby yeah. blimp. There is a presence opposing him out there. Yeah, and that ticks him off. A lot of Brits do not like him. Uh, not very popular there. And so I think what he's finding is that there is this groundswell of anti-Trump opposition to his policies and the fact that he's made 
America isolated in the world, and the U.S. and the U.K. are supposed to be linked at the, ch- at the waist, and so he is not happy about that. And th- what's interesting is that they're trying to kind of be a new royal family with the number of Trump kids who are over there. They couldn't resist being a part of the festivities and you know dressing up and going to Buckingham Palace and meeting the Queen and going to those banquets, and so everyone except Baron Trump is uh, over there. Daniel Lippman, co-author of the Politico Playbook. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. More Americans are living solo, and the companies that want their business are upending generations of family-focused products and marketing and catering to single-person households with smaller appliances, individual packaging, and giant toilet paper rolls. We spoke to Ellen Byron, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, For how many people are living alone now? Almost a third of U.S. households are one person. And that is very much in contrast with how consumer products have been marketed, we can really say for generations, to families with usually four people and households that need a lot of portions of things. And that just simply is not in line with the full story of American consumers right now. And a wide range of industries are waking up to this and making changes. Now, we hear a lot of millennials and uh, older Americans increasingly starting to live alone, specifically with millennials. You always hear the stories of, you know, they're hitting the adulthood benchmarks later in life. They're starting families later. So I assume this has a lot to do with that part. And one of the things that comes to my head was there was a store out here in California called Fresh and Easy. This was a few years ago that was kind of a smaller neighborhood market thing, but everything was catered to single or maybe two people portion sizes. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. that place went out of business. Uh, I might have gone out of business, definitely filed for bankruptcy, but maybe they were just a little too early on this curve. But this is kind of where everybody's going with their products now. Right. And there's a number of demographic trends that are contributing to this. So, yes, urban millennials are certainly a major component in this trend, but so are aging consumers. Longer life expectancy is a big factor in the growth of single-person households. You also have flocking to cities. So, of course, that requires different kitchen appliance sizes and serving sizes, even toilet paper roll sizes. And rising wealth has also been a factor identified as a reason why Americans want to live alone, because a lot of Americans can now afford to. So let's talk about some of the things that are changing. There's been a lot of research done. Companies are trying to figure out how singles are buying differently. And they're finding out that they simply just don't necessarily want things that are smaller. Sometimes they're willing to pay more for certain things. One example in particular is you go to the market and you see all the fruits and vegetables, but you're increasingly seeing the pre-cut section, you know, whole watermelons that are already mm-hmm. cut, all the fruit. Those things cost more, but those are increasingly being sold and that single person households are buying those more. Something that Americans hate to do is pay for food that they know they're going to throw away. Yes. And so when you do have these pre-chopped assortments, you have a better handle when you're moving through produce aisle, let's say, of how much is actually there. And you feel value in paying for what you know you're going to use as opposed to paying for something that might be cheaper per use, but you know you're not going to use the whole thing. So one consumer I spoke with, she lives in Austin. She knows that she's paying almost twice as much for pre-chopped romaine lettuce, 
but her grocery store only sells the whole heads of romaine lettuce in packs of three. She so despises throwing away entire heads of lettuce that go off before she has a chance to eat it that she pays more for the pre-chopped lettuce. And you see that category by category. The same consumer, when she got a few promotions, she consciously splurged on more of these pre-chopped, pre-prepared groceries. Tell us a little bit about General Mills and their baking team. They tasked them to kind of see what's changing. And this is another example where they came up with a product. People are paying a little bit more for it, but it's the portion size is better for the single person household. This is an example that actually takes the single person household far beyond just urban millennials. This also addresses aging consumers. So they realized that the category sales for cake and brownie mixes in that aisle were going down, but sales were going up fast for individual slices of cake and brownies in the deli aisle. And they realized that consumers just wanted desserts in a different size. They liked the convenience and they also didn't want to throw away half a cake that they couldn't eat. So they launched things like a line called Mug Treats. That is meant to address the fact that people who grew up with Betty Crocker could still enjoy Betty Crocker, but in the product configuration that worked for them. Let's talk about my favorite part of this story. It's toilet paper. Now, I, <laughs> I go to Costco. I love Costco because you do get to stock up on the bulk items. I'll get my toilet paper there, but then I have to stash away 36 rolls of toilet paper until I use it all, you know? So I have a cabinet in the bathroom that I put it in and I get creative with where I'm going to put it, all the rest (laughs) of it. So Procter & Gamble has released this huge toilet paper roll. It looks almost like the size of a commercial toilet paper roll kind of thing that's hidden in the wall, but... But this is the new thing that they're testing out right now. Procter & Gamble is an example of a company that is intensely studying this demographic. They're sending researchers into these consumers' apartments and studying how they live. And one thing they realized was that, like you, all these consumers had to really cram their extra stash of toilet paper in unusual places in their home. They kept seeing toilet paper rolls under people's beds and in kitchen cabinets, for example. And one solution is to keep your entire toilet paper inventory on one roll. And that reduces by nearly half the amount of storage space that you might need if you had bought the equivalent 24 rolls of toilet paper. And so single people tell them that this is enough toilet paper for two to three months. (laughs) And they sell it online. It's still in a test phase, but it comes with a free stand because obviously this doesn't fit on most toilet paper rolls because it's gigantic. It's 12 inches in diameter. They sell it on the stand that will fit between the wall and a toilet. It's usually unused space in nearly any size bathroom. I kind of want to get one of these and then invite some friends over just to see what their reaction is for the huge (laughs) toilet paper roll. Just the last question, appliances also getting smaller because of space, things like that. But one place where people Mm -hmm. want to go bigger are their closets. You know, when you're living as a single person, you maybe splurge a little more on your wardrobe. So single person households are increasingly wanting bigger closet space. I spoke with a Los Angeles based luxury closet designer, and she's been in business for 12 years. And over that time, the number of single clients she has on her roster has grown. It's now almost 40% of her business. And what she's finding is that these single clients are lucrative because they're willing to splurge on more custom features like special shelving for their handbag collection or their shoe collection. And they're willing to invest in these extras because it's their own personal space. They're not negotiating with a partner, let's say, about a shared closet. Rather, it's 
all their own. I talked to a Los Angeles consumer who did work with this closet designer, and she actually converted a large den in the front of her home to a giant wardrobe and dressing room. And she drywalled over the front door of her home. She usually uses the side entrance anyway. And so that front room is now her personal space where she has a lounge chair, a chandelier, a special rug, and she a built-in desk. She enjoys that as her own special luxurious dressing room. Wow. I I had a friend who collected shoes and he had a two-bedroom apartment. That whole second bedroom was dedicated to nothing but shoes in there. So I can tell you that that closet space is definitely needed there. Ellen Byron, reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thanks. Homelessness is a problem all across the country, but the headlines in California are getting crazy. Ellie County specifically seems to be having a bad time. Homelessness has jumped 12% despite millions of dollars being poured in to help. In the meantime, there is constant news of rats, fleas, and feces due to homeless encampments. We spoke to Benjamin Oreskes, reporter for the LA Times, to break down the latest numbers. The county, every year, to sort of comply with federal government, does a three-day point-in-time count. They send out 8,000 volunteers in January, over three days, to sort of get a snapshot of what the city and county's homeless population looks like. These numbers are used and are not just sort of political footballs. They are very important in deciding how funding gets distributed. And this number, which is not an exact number, we should always be careful when using it. It's an extrapolation. There's a statistical analysis that has done a demographic study found that there had been a 12% increase. And since 2011, the number has exploded from about 39,000 to uh, this year we saw around 59,000. So it sort of is the story of the moment in LA and then in California as well, where Counties across the state have been reporting increases in the double-digit percent. Up in the Bay Area, San Francisco saw a 17% increase, I believe. Alameda County, where Oakland is, I think saw a 43% spike. These numbers are, are very large, and people are angry about it, and it's sort of taking up a lot of the political oxygen. And in the meantime, the state is allotting billions of dollars to help combat this problem. I know all the individual cities and counties, the same, they're doing the same, trying to throw money at the issue that largely surrounds housing, uh, more affordable housing to help put these people in so we can get them off of the streets. Yeah, and I mean, I would say it actually also goes beyond housing. In L.A. County, we've had several bond measures and sales tax increases that, you know, have been tied to outreach. And, you know, there are some bright spots in these numbers where the county and public officials point to this housed around 20,000 people last year. A huge achievement for them, a, a huge increase in that number. And they point to sort of better organization, more outreach workers, more organization. But that number couldn't keep pace with the number of people falling into homelessness. And as you alluded to, city officials, county officials, state officials are all pointing to the affordable housing crisis. As rents go up, it's pushing more people into their cars and onto the streets and making this crisis something that's harder to solve. Yeah, and that's one of the things that the LA Board of Supervisors, they had meetings and they were saying that every day last year, 133 homeless people had moved into permanent housing, but another 150 people became homeless. So it's not an amazing stat. Yeah, Yeah. it's outpacing the number despite all the money and all the increased housing that they're trying to get there. Let's talk about the 
homeless population a little bit. About 75% of them are living outside. But there's been an increase in younger people, people aged 18 to 24 also. If I could just quickly talk about that unsheltered population, I do sure. think it really, it's what you see on the streets every day. It's what angers people. And I think it's in real stark contrast to a place like New York City, where there is a larger homeless population, but most of them are in shelters. So it's not something you necessarily see. And I think that contributes to a lot of the sort of anger, discontent that you sort of see in the page of the LA Times or on television or as you walk down the street. This is something that every resident lives with. They're either living with it because they're seeing it on their block or they're living with it because their rent is going up. So I think it fuels a lot of that palpable emotion that we're seeing. But yes, as you said, you know, there's been a huge increase in the youth population. The population of sort of chronically homeless people, sort of meaning you've been on the street more than a year, has gone up. The city or county officials sort of say that might also be tied to people entering into that category, people who had been on the streets and then suddenly had hit this milestone and now are counted as part of that population. But again, those are two worrying signs and things that the county is still trying to get their head around in terms of how to address them. But there were not a lot of bright spots in this besides city officials sort of pointing to the number of people they house. But again, I'd, I'd direct you to a quote that I think sums all this up from the head of the Homeless Services Organization in L.A. County, where he says, we're the safety net of last resort. He said, I can't fix poverty. I can't fix housing affordability. I can't fix the criminal justice system. Those are larger problems and there needs to be public policy fixes for them. The problem is multifaceted. Back to the housing thing, and we're talking about Los Angeles County specifically, as you alluded to earlier, the numbers and there's increases going on all across the state. But in LA County, uh, we need almost 517,000 more units of affordable rental housing to meet a demand. But these renters need to make $47.50 per hour, which is more than triple the minimum wage to pay the median monthly rent of about $2,400. Housing costs are crazy in this area. What are officials trying to do to get that under control? We've seen a lot of efforts in Sacramento to sort of address this issue in terms of how cities or cities and just communities in general are zoned. And then we've seen attempts at rental caps. We've seen attempts at fixing the way that evictions are done. Issues have sort of failed in the legislature and not much progress has been made. And the county is building more permanent supportive housing, but not a lot of those units have come online. And again, I think that these numbers will probably could get worse in the years to come as this county can't keep up with the number of people falling into homelessness because they can't afford to pay their rent. Benjamin, the last question I have has to do with sort of the optics of this whole thing. You know, I start off by talking about a lot of the headlines and, and sort of, you know, some of the nastier parts of it, you know, the, the feces, the rats, the rodent problems, there's fleas. Last year, there was a typhus problem in Skid Row where there was a lot of people uh, have these homeless encampments. How are they responding to that part of it? Our mayor has called this a humanitarian crisis. It is. And I think that the mayor and the legislature or the city council has done a lot in terms of public health outreach. You know, there's more of an, an increased effort. There will be more money in the budget for cleanups of encampments. But again, you know, when you have people living on the streets, these are the problems you run into. And if there are more of them, the problem will get worse. So it's it's something that people are very worried about. And it's something that's also angering lots of people. Benjamin Oreskes, reporter for the LA Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, that's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. Thank you.